word today. Encourage us, challenge us, and remind us of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to move fairly quickly this morning. Uh, I have already spoken to Lucas about giving me a signal uh, because I will uh, be heading as soon as I finish preaching. Uh, I will turn over the service um, to somebody. I can't remember who now. I think it's, I think it's Keith. <laughs> and uh, I and, uh, will be headed over to uh, the other church uh, making a presentation, reference our merge, uh, and taking Q&A. So I'll be praying for myself. Keith will also join me there as will Lucas. As we set with their merch team, uh, their entire service is dedicated to that today, uh, and so we will be there um, for presentations and Q&As, um, and so uh, be praying for us uh, that the Lord would have his uh, will done in that church. Uh, what an amazing, historic time uh, for two churches to consider this. Um, I know some people might be somewhat discouraged about our low attendance here. Uh, myself and Chad Malden and, and Lucas, uh, this would have been a revival when we started this church. <laughs> we were like, oh my goodness, uh, the Lord has opened the floodgates. So uh, I know we have a tremendous amount of people out today. Uh, I know some may be watching on social media. Uh, we're going to weather this storm and uh, we'll move through this and uh, our church will continue to respond as best we can to the events that are occurring but we felt as a church, as small as we are, that we wanted to continue together and preach. And um, not saying that large churches may not have had to make different decisions, but um, we're not that large yet. <laughs> so uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, glad you're gathered here. Uh, we're going to once again tackle an entire chapter. Here's good news. Uh, the subject matter is much different than last week. Amen. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> and, uh, and the verses are a lot shorter, but uh, let's tackle... 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and our continual study of the book of 1 Corinthians, which we entitled For the Glory of God Alone. This is Sermon 14, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 13. This is the Word of God, inspired for Paul to write down. And he writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered up to an idol, and their conscience being weak, it's defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ." 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Once again, I just want to remind you of the historical context of what's happening. This is a first century Greco-Roman world uh, that is not bathed in Christian DNA. We have a tremendously hard time taking our brains and understanding the world as it was at this time. Other gods and other temples and uh, pagan worship was rampant. Christianity was new. And so what was happening in this city of Corinth is these pagan worshipers who had spent their lives hearing about all these other gods have been brought to saving faith in Christ. A radical change. We already heard last week in 1 Corinthians 7 how Christianity alone elevated women from being property to being owners. And it, it floored the entire culture at that time. This was so controversial to us. It's so easy. We've grown up in America, a culture that is just, has Christianity just written across almost every document we have. There's some kind of thought process that is framed up by our Judeo-Christian beliefs. That is not the case for who Paul is writing to here. The questions they have about their faith are real questions, questions that may not have ever actually been asked in the churches yet, questions that Paul was having to address that we think, well, that's dumb. I don't understand how they could think that. They thought it because they didn't know any better yet. There, there was no other groups to get with. There were no other churches to go hang out with down the street. There were no joint Sunday services with other denominations. There was no VBS, no seminars, no Bible schools. Nothing like that existed. And so, once again, Paul is answering questions that are written to him by this church. He spent 18 months teaching there. He leaves, and he gets a letter from the, from the Corinthians, from these Christians, with a whole bunch of questions in it. Now, here's what we don't. We don't have that letter we don't know exactly what that letter had to say, but what we have inspired by God in the canon is 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's answer to the questions they had. Now, here's basic understanding of how to interpret the scriptures. For you to understand what the Bible means today, you must, must, must understand what it meant to the Corinthians because what it meant to the Corinthians is what it means to us today, but in that there is a universal truth that we take from that and apply it to our life and our culture today. So what we have here um, is what is unusual for us. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around it, but he answers at the very beginning, and you'll notice in your Bible there is a tremendous amount of quotation marks uh, and we'll get to that for sure. Uh, many of those are questions uh, and or statements that Paul either is quoting from their letter or they may have quoted from his teaching. Um, we're not exactly sure, uh, but whatever the case, he's referencing something the Corinthians have brought up. So he says, now concerning food offered to idols. So in this letter, the Corinthians wrote, they had questions about food offered to idols. Now, in a culture of which there's nothing pretty much there but pagan worship, 
one of the things that would happen, I don't want to get too historical here, too much detail here, uh, but they would, they would sacrifice meat to their God. And so if you bought meat in the market, if you, if you wanted meat, most likely that meat was sacrificed to a foreign god. So if you were to go to Walmart yesterday and there were to actually be any meat in the Walmart, <laughs> didn't know that was going to be a problem when I preached this text. But anyway, and you were walking your way down the aisle and you saw hamburger meat, but all the labels said this hamburger meat was sacrificed to a pagan god. And we worshiped that god while we sacrificed and created this meat. I don't know about you, but me, I'd be like, oh, well, well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's not what we thought. And you might look for a different kind of meat. You might look for one that was just, you know, kosher maybe. <laughs> You'd be looking for something different, that something that was not sacrificed to a pagan god. And Now, Corinthians didn't have Walmarts. They didn't have that option. And so the meats were sacrificed to idols. Remember, many of these Corinthians worshipped those gods in those temples. And now they ask Paul, what do we do about steak? What do we do about this? It's crazy that we would think of that, that, that we think of this kind of crazy. Why they're gonna, I mean, listen, I don't know about you, but if I have an opportunity to ask a handful of questions to Paul, it's not going to be about meat. <laughs> but... For these Corinthians, it was huge. They had no understanding of all the other things happening in their culture, that Christianity was just changing so many things, and, and they had all these what we would think are basic questions, but they were huge questions for these Corinthians because it would change. What Paul would write back would change how they interact with their culture and, more importantly, with each other in the church. And so Paul answered the questions. So he says, we know that, and here's quotes, all of us possess knowledge, and this quote, knowledge, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now remember, the struggle that these Corinthians had, the one Paul had already been ripping and hammering away at the earlier chapters, is that the Corinthians saw themselves as superior in their knowledge. They prided themselves in their culture on knowledge. It was a part of their DNA. And this prideful knowledge had caused so many problems and so many divisions in the local body that Paul called it out of the earlier part of the Corinthians. And he is returning to this again because these Corinthians are saying, we have the knowledge. We know some things here, but there's some debate in our church, Paul. So we want you to solve this problem. And when you think, and this is something for us, when you think you have arrived at knowledge, you tend to get puffed up and arrogant knowledge doesn't build up the church. Instead, it belittles others and it leaves people behind. True spiritual knowledge, Paul will argue, loves others. And in their knowledge, they don't belittle others. They build them up and they act graciously towards one another, something that was not happening in the church. There was a division here that even we had leadership divisions, we had theology divisions, and now we have divisions over who can and cannot eat 
meet. They were divided over this subject, and Paul was having to address it. So godly people, those who love God, who are known by God, have more and should have more to offer each other than just knowledge. In fact, godly people should admit that they don't know everything as fully as they should know it. I told you years ago, or a few months ago, I found a tape from the first sermon I ever preached. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's terrible. We grow in knowledge. We grow in knowledge. And some of the things that you would have absolutely heals that many of you would have died on 25 years ago, you look back and say, I shouldn't have been so dogmatic about that. And if there's anything our churches need to be less about, it's dogmatic about things that the Bible doesn't clearly say. Isn't it amazing how many of us come up with strong opinions about which Paul didn't have one? Isn't that hilarious? Like, oh, I know this is the only way we do this. Well, that's interesting because I can't find it in the Bible. Well, if I would have been writing it. <laughs> but you didn't. Here's where it is, and we must go with what the Scriptures say. And there is always something else to learn. There is always more to understand and ponder and be amazed about when it comes to godly knowledge. And if you think you have arrived, you are much further away than someone who thinks they have not arrived. So godly people always willing to learn. And in the process of learning, they help others by loving them, building them up, and as we will soon see, even laying down their freedoms, their own knowledge, the truth, the way they really can behave in Christ, even those things that we can do, we lay them down to help a weaker brother. Now, one serious danger for our church, I do believe this, we have a lot of really smart people in here, lots of Bible guys, Bible degree guys, seminary guys, uh, makes me nervous every time I get in the pulpit. Um, and, but um, remember, and I hope we remember this as a church, if you love theology but don't love people, your theology is useless. If you love theology but don't love people, your theology is useless. And what I mean by loving people is that people know you love them. They know you love them because you engage with them. You sacrifice for them. You are known as a lover of people. I rarely profile my own family because it seems somewhat arrogant, but I'm going to profile this one. Um, I will profile my dad for a moment. Uh, my dad is a quiet man, mainly because he doesn't have an opportunity with my mother and I uh, around him. But nevertheless, I digress. Um, my dad loves people, never meets a stranger, uh, always shaking hands and making conversations. a joke in my family that if we ever get to a table in a restaurant, uh, Dad's not going to make it to the table and the rest of us do because he's going to meet 74 people that he knows. He's going to shake hands. He's going to make people feel welcomed. And every Sunday, my dad, who is quiet, is found shaking hands with people. Except for today, dead gum coronavirus. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along. People know that my dad cares for people because he shows it. Listen, I don't care how theologically rich you are. If you can't let people know you care about them, you need to go all the way back to VBS and start over again because you've missed it. 
So if you love theology and books and lectures but not people, you are nothing, you're on nothing more than a selfish quest for knowledge. Self-centered you are. Godly knowledge without love is useless. And, by the way, uh, this won't be the last chapter Paul makes that argument about if you can do a lot of things but you don't have love, you're useless. But verse 4, after that, after that framework, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, quotation marks, and that there is, quotation marks, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods, little g, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quotation marks, little g, and many lords, quotation marks, little l, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul, once again, is taking quotes, I believe, from their letter, either statements they were making for the first time to him or taking things that he has said before, and they are quoting these statements back to Paul. So they're saying to, to Paul, listen, Listen, Paul, we got these people who don't want to eat this meat. And listen, they're saying they don't want to eat meat because it's offered to an idol. But listen, we know that there are no gods but our God. All idols are false. And they think Paul's going to be like, yes, way to tell those brothers and sisters off. But that's not what Paul does. Let me frame this up a bit for you. Um, in a couple of weeks, if we can go outside, <laughs> there will be... Yellow stuff soon all over East Texas. Already is. And I don't know if you know this, um, but the pollen god is in charge of that. The god of pollen. Um, and the pollen god, we just framed this up in modern day. The pollen god uh, has some followers, and they have a temple in Longview, and they build it, and they worship the god of pollen. I guess they'd have a big... <laughs> Yellow stone, or I don't know what they'd have. But, but if the pollen god decided to offer free filet mignons, Chad Malden and I are going. <laughs> we're going to go eat there, brother. We're going to eat. We're going to say, all you can eat filet mignons? Yes! I'm calling up Chad. We're going. We're getting the car together. We're not going to eat for two days so we can eat the filet mignon. But here's the problem. Joey Sutton used to be a worshiper of the pollen god. He believed in the pollen god, and I don't know what he did. I don't know how you worship the pollen god, but because I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe you sneeze a lot. That's how you do it. I don't know. But he is brand new to the Christian faith. It would be foolish for Chad and I, on our way to the Paul and God temple, to say, why don't we swing by and pick up Joey? Joey would have a great time. Because Joey would say, I can't do that. We, we sacrifice that meat in a ritual of worship. I, I was there. I know those people. Those people know me. I was a leader there. I worshiped. The pollen god, I was there. Now, Chad and I might look at each other and go, well, you were a moron, Joey. I mean, come on. Well, there is one God, Joey, one God. God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We serve a Trinitarian God, and they control pollen. There is no pollen god. That's fake. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. Get in the car. 
be mature. That is the kinds of things that were happening in Corinth. And these young believers who couldn't understand all that, what Paul says, the weaker brothers, to take them back to the temple and partake of that sacrifice would have caused them to stumble, meaning they may have drifted right back in to pagan worship. And so Paul's addressing that here. The next verse explains that. However, not all, Joey Sutton, <laughs> possess this knowledge. Hope y'all, this is being fed live on Facebook. Y'all are going to get questions, I'm sure. <laughs> However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak. Watch how many times Paul says that. Being weak is defiled. So Paul is now reminding these Corinthians that just because, Chad and Jason, you are free to eat whatever you want because you're in Christ, you must be gracious with your freedom because you are called to live life together, not by yourselves. Now Paul does not have in mind here, and I'm going to repeat this. Man, I wish I could teach this. Maybe we'll have a focus class on this at length because there's a lot here. Paul is, does not, does not have in mind other strong believers. He has weak believers in mind. Weak believers. He is concerned about the freedom of some hurting or wounding or causing problems for the Christian who is weak or new in their faith. In fact, if you take a good listen as we work through this text, how many times Paul re-emphasizes over and over and over again the word weak? Number eight, or verse eight, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Paul is reminding everyone, what we eat is what makes us holy or unholy. We are no better off by eating meat sacrificed to idols and no worse off if we do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The question here is not about the kind of food or even the idols. What is in view here are other believers who are weak in their faith, meaning believers who still need to grow in their faith. In verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, underline that in your Bible, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And it is very interesting to me. I've, I've never paid attention to this before. I've read this text many times. And I didn't hear many um, preachers, only a couple of them, even profiled this. But it's interesting that not only is this is not really even a discussion of food, although it is, but it's also interesting that Paul emphasizes the location of the food. That the food is not just being eaten at someone's house, which you may not have known whether or not it was offered or not. Maybe the Christians cooked it themselves. But here, particularly, what's in picture, what's in, what's in the frame here, is that this eating is occurring in the actual temple. And Paul says, if you who are strong in your faith are eating at the temple, and you're having a good old time, and unbeliever or new, new believer Joey comes by and says, well, if they can eat in the temple, I should be able to eat in the temple. 
we don't have any issue with eating meat sacrificed to a God who doesn't exist. It's good meat. Our God made the meat. But Joey falls back into that worship. And our freedom, because we were arrogant, and the way we used it causes Joey to fall down. In verse 11, and so by your knowledge, a reference to the Corinthians argument about how much knowledge they had, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So don't get arrogant here, strong believers. So Paul's saying, don't forget the weak, don't forget the weakest in their faith. They're, they're still believers. These people who are struggling, they're weak in their faith. They're still believers. That mainly immature baby Christians who are struggling to learn how to walk out their faith. They're new to the faith. This is not like someone who grew up in the Christian church their whole life and got saved at 20 and understands the culture. These are people who had not grown up in church. They grew up in pagan worship, and they're new believers. They're walking this stuff out. But don't forget, Paul says to these believers, that even these weak ones, Jesus died for them. So the way you act towards them with your freedom is important. In fact, in verse 12... Paul is going to make an even stronger statement. Verse 12, he says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's strong. You better be gracious in your use of freedom, or you can sin not only against your weaker brothers and sisters, but you can actually sin against Christ himself. And then in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Gracious Christian freedom. You must use your freedom responsibly. Let me give you some quick examples that have actually happened to me. Several years ago, I had a friend want to meet me for dinner, a believer, someone who uh, I enjoyed hanging out with, and he asked me, he didn't, he didn't live in Longview, but he was aware of Longview, he called and said, where do you want to meet at? And I gave him a couple of locations. He said, I'm going to have to pass on those locations. And he, I gave him another one. And he said, I'm going to have to pass on that as well. And I finally said, what is the deal with you? And he said, look, all those places have TVs. And sometimes the things that are on those televisions, I just struggle with. Um, I, just, I just need to go somewhere where there's not a TV. Now, the first reaction in my godly pastor mode was, Grow up. <laughs> I mean, really? There's TVs everywhere. But that would have been arrogant of me. Here was a brother who acknowledged that he struggled with certain images that might come on those TVs. And he simply was asking, can we go somewhere to eat dinner where there's not televisions? The right thing for me to do is say yes. Absolutely we can. Now, it also caused a little bit of a reaction to me that maybe I should be more careful about what I make sure my eyes aren't watching on TV. But nevertheless, I said, sure, let's go somewhere because I don't want my freedom in Christ to go to whatever restaurant I want to, to hang out and enjoy the great food and not even pay attention to TVs. How many times have you been out with your family and someone says, you sit on TV? And you said, no, I, I wasn't even paying attention. I mean, I have a freedom to do that. I could do that and not even pay attention to it. But my freedom could cause my other brother to stumble. And so I wouldn't do it. Well, let's use one that's the elephant in the room. Alcohol. 
For some people, it's a temptation. It's just a temptation. Maybe they got saved out of alcoholism. Maybe they came from a family and where there was abuse done because of alcohol. And for others to ask someone to hang out with them and drink or, hey, meet me at the bar, it could bring bad memories up. Or maybe it brings back temptation. And I understand that. Um, here's the issue. Um, this is really, I would say, a call for community at the end of the day. Because once you get to know people better, you can navigate these possibilities much easier. Knowing the struggles of others helps you restrain your own freedom in Christ when you know it's the good for your fellow believers. It's also a call for maturity. Remembering in some areas of your life you need to mature in doesn't mean that you may personally choose to drink alcohol, for example. Um, but I've grown in my maturity in the faith, and I understand that the Bible does not, and I'll take me to dinner. you got to buy, though, steak. <laughs> you take me to dinner. I, you cannot prove to me anywhere in the Bible that it forbids Christians to ever partake of alcohol. Can't find it. It's not in there. Now, you can take me and tell me about all the dangers of that, and I can agree with you. It doesn't say you can't. And I've grown with my understanding of the Scripture. And at one point in my life, when I was younger, I looked down on any Christian who ever drank alcohol, even if it was one drink, and yet it was actually I who was immature. Now, for those of you who are just curious, I've never had any alcohol. Made a commitment when I was a young man to not drink because of several reasons, and I've chosen to continue that, and that's my own decision. But it's not a decision I'm going to enforce upon someone else. But yet... If I look down on someone because they drink, they have a glass of wine with their meal, and I sit back and judge them, am I not violating everything Romans 14 was? I'm going, well, you can't do that. You don't have the right to do that. Well, according to the Scripture, they do. Now, if they get drunk, different story. But once again, that's their issue. We can't say, church, we're not going to be the pool table people where you have pool tables. We're not going to have, I remember a church telling me we can't have pool tables in the youth room because if you have pool tables in the youth room, they'll like pool, and then the only place they can ever play pool is in a bar. And so then they'll grow up, they go to bars and play pool, and then they'll become drunkards. Oh, are you serious? But that's how some of you think. I mean, you think that if I could just keep the world away from people, they won't sin. Here's the problem. Sin comes from within your own heart. You could keep people away from everything. You know what they'll still do? They'll still sin. And so let's teach the truth of the word. I think there's a tremendous amount of consequences that can occur if you go and decide to drink. Are you free to do so? Absolutely, you're free to do so. But you must guard yourself while doing it. Now, not everyone in this room holds the same view that I hold on alcohol. And I understand that. And so... It would be foolish for me to invite you to a winery for a test of wine, wouldn't it? Which would be really stupid because I don't drink either. <laughs> but, but that would be wrong. And so if you have an issue with that, I shouldn't invite you to my house and offer you wine. I shouldn't rub your face in my freedom. But you also shouldn't judge me because of my freedom. We have a responsibility to each other. 
And one of the best things to do is develop relationships with one another, build um, mature relationships where you can talk about your struggles, and then you can know what to ask and what not to ask and what to invite and what not to invite. And so in wrapping up, we should lay down any freedom that we have so that others can have room to grow in their faith. It's what we do when we love the brothers. We help. We are gracious. I pray the Lord through the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the truth of this passage this morning. Believers, be gracious with your freedom in Christ. Grace has been extended to us as believers through the gospel. And those of us who have believed the gospel should extend grace to our weaker brothers. Be careful how you talk and live out your freedom around those who are still learning to mature. The gospel calls us to be gracious. And you may ask, well, what is the gospel? I'm so glad you asked. You're, you're going to say, man, I hope he has a presentation every week downstairs. <laughs> Here's the gospel. The gospel is you were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin, which is why you can put somebody in a dogmatic, legalistic church, fundamental, where they don't do anything wrong. They're not allowed anything. No TVs, no, no technology, no contact with the outside world, and they will still get involved in sexual immorality. You know why? Because sin resides in your heart. And that sin separated you from a holy Holy, holy God. I don't care how religious you are. Without Christ, you are lost and under the wrath of God. But God loved you so much, even when you were sinning, that he sent Christ, his only begotten son, to live a life that you could never live, a life of perfection, so that those who have sin, which is all of us, that sin would be taken by Christ to the cross. He would bear our punishment that we richly deserved, and for those of us who put our faith in Christ and in his sacrifice can be made new. We can get his righteousness, and he takes our sin. And people say, how do I get saved? Don't I have to repeat a prayer? Don't I have to say a certain set of lines? You do not. The Bible's clear. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent means to say, I don't want to go this way anymore, Lord. The way I'm living my life is not the way I want to live it. And Lord, I trust you. I repent of this and I put my faith in you. What you say, I will follow and I'll go wherever you lead. You are my master. And you're going to fail and you're going to struggle and you're going to mess up, but there's going to be something inside of you now that constantly moves you toward holiness. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you would say, how do I know I'm saved then? Because you will never, ever be the same again. You'll never be the same again. What you desire and the things you want will forever be altered. And that is the gospel. If you have questions about the gospel, if you'd like to talk to someone about the gospel, I'd like for our elders to stand up, please. Our elders are more than welcomed and happy to talk with you, get a hold of them after the service, grab them, meet with them here, take them to lunch, meet with them during the week. They'd be happy to talk with you more about what it means to put your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are good. Lord, there are so many things that divide churches that your word doesn't tell us about. And Lord, I pray that we would be very careful to draw battle lines up on those kinds of things. 
Lord, that, God, we would be gracious in our freedoms in Christ. We would care deeply about our brothers and sisters who are struggling to walk for the first time in the faith. God, that we would remember our job is not to run far out ahead of them, but to walk beside them and help them mature in you, Lord. Pray, God, that you would teach that to our church, that our church would be a gracious church, that we would be a church that someone who struggles and falls down and doesn't quite understand everything would feel welcomed, loved, cared for, and helped. And I pray, God, that we would be a church serious about theology, but that seriousness would lead us to love people. You are a good God. It's your precious name I pray. Amen.